Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. And in today's episode, we're talking with two great recruiting leaders in the Midwest, Nick Kremitis and Caleb Dumont. Nick is co-founder and CEO of Hunt Club in Chicago, Illinois. Founded in 2015, Hunt Club is a tech-enabled recruiting service, helping companies find the best passive talent for every open position. He is also the founder of New Coast Ventures, a combination creative agency and venture capital fund. Caleb is the founder and CEO of Integrity Power Search in Cleveland, Ohio, a boutique retained search firm for high growth startups and technology companies across North America. Since 2012, Integrity Power Search has successfully executed thousands of retained searches and their clients have collectively raised tens of billions of dollars in venture and private equity funding. In this episode, we're going to dive into the effects of COVID on remote work, hiring, and recruiting. How we can eliminate friction in that first phone call interview. The ability to work remote opens up options for companies and potential hires. And how you develop trust remotely. Taking a job is incredibly personal, so feeling that trust is important. The biggest theme, or so what, I hope you take away from this conversation is the importance of educating potential employees about their stock options and equity. There hasn't been as much exposure in the Midwest for employees to see the rewards from having equity in a company. Leaders need to educate and be upfront and authentic about the employment package, making sure they understand how the equity will be valued at each stage from seed to series A and B and beyond. Please enjoy my conversation with Nick and Caleb. All right. Today is exciting. Our first duo interview. So today we have with us Nick Kremitis, founder and CEO of Hunt Club, a tech recruiting company in Chicago, and Caleb Dumont, founder and CEO of Integrity Power Search in Cleveland, both of whom are at on the front lines of uh, innovation and recruiting and talent uh, in the Midwest. We've had opportunities to work together on various projects and we're really interested today to dig into some of the trends as well as some of the myths uh, that are out there about talent and recruiting. So ton to cover. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us, Tim. Excited. Caleb, uh, since you started Integrity Power Search in 2012, why don't you kick off, just tell us a little bit about your firm and the origin story. So from a young age, as a kid growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, I always knew I wanted to start a company. My parents always fought about money growing up. And so I knew that deep down, I never wanted to have a family like that. So I grew up in a city where there's a lot of wealth, a lot of business owners and a lot of doctors, a lot of wealthy people. And I looked around and thought like, hey, if I made a bunch of money, I won't have these problems at home. So from 12 to 13, I was you know selling cards at school, Pokemon, things like that. And, you know, when I was in college, I did five internships, knew I wanted to start a company, never knew what it was really going to be until I discovered recruiting in this entire industry. Um, so I basically graduated college, went to Kent State, started this company out of my parents' basement, and that was eight and a half, nine years ago. Um, since then, we've hired over 2,000 people for startups and venture-backed and private equity-backed companies all across North America. We have 20 associates across the U.S. and then three main practice areas. So we do executive search, sales and marketing search, and then tech recruiting for startups and high-growth tech companies. Awesome. And you've done recruiting for companies that listeners might know, like Root Insurance, Duolingo, StockX, Cameo. A lot of great 
successes there. And Tim, you've been great for our business as well. So I appreciate that. All the love over the years, we've worked with four or five companies in your portfolio too. Absolutely. That's what's so fun about this. We've all gotten to work together and experience the same challenges and, and also achievements. So Nick, tell us more about Hunt Club. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I started Hunt Club in 2015, but really didn't go full-time on it until 17. So my background, Tim, which you know, that is starts something called New Coast Ventures in Chicago, which is a venture studio model where we're investing in early stage companies and incubating some of our own ideas. And Hunt Club was the second and it came out of um, really just some observations I had about the industry. So I had a great friend that was an executive recruiter mm-hmm. and he was incredible at like looking at my LinkedIn, seeing who I was connecting to and asking for introductions. And one summer I had placed five people for him. You know, he'd say, Hey Nick, I see you're connected to Tim. Can I get an introduction? I've got this role. And, and I kept getting an email back from the people that I introduced saying, Hey, like, you know, I actually wasn't looking, but I took this job and I'm super excited about it. And thank you. And like, so that like piqued my curiosity about the space and how does it work? What's new? What's different? And, you know, I spent that summer shadowing like all the big executive search firms. So my, my um, CTO's father is a partner at one of the largest called Egon Zender and looked at a couple others and just sort of realized none of them use any technology to power their process. In professional services, this is still one of the industry that still uses like, you know, a yellow legal pad and an archaic CRM and LinkedIn and like that's it. So automation really hasn't taken foot yet. Um, But I think the better insight was like the best recruiters we sort of met, curated, cultivated these networks and called on these networks to access both talent and originate business. And so I thought, why don't we try and do something different where we build our own technology from scratch. So we've got a kind of 15 person product and tech team growing to 30 this year to help automate what can be an augment, which can't. And then, um, and then really leverage an expert network to find great talent. So you can get, you know, the best marketer or if we're doing a CMO search, you can get, you know, hundreds of marketing leaders across the country referring on your behalf. And so that was, that was sort of the story from the beginning. It hasn't changed much. Um, the company's up to 70 people you know, growing to 110, 120 this year and really lucky to have, you know, tons of high growth relationships across funds and, and customers and, and, and trying to power talent in a different way. So it's, you know, it's fun being on here with you because you've obviously been a great supporter and been friends with Caleb for a while. I'm a huge fan of him and the way he's built his business. So excited to talk about talent. Yeah, this is, um, this is fun because you guys not only are good at what you do, but you're also great entrepreneurs. So I want to dig into both of those things, but first let's get to like maybe the, the elephant in the room, uh, which is, can you really hire technical talent in the Midwest? I think for me on this question, Tim, there's two main things. One in the Midwest, we have really, really top computer science programs, right? So we have university of Michigan, we have Carnegie Mellon, we have Ohio state university. We have some of the best CS programs in the world. And a lot of these folks are not moving to the coast now because it's just too expensive. So they're staying home, right? So you have access to this talent that traditionally would move, but is now staying home. And then two, one of the challenges that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that we haven't really cracked the nut in the Midwest is we have more Fortune 500 companies in the middle of the country, in the Midwest than anywhere else in the US, right? And so there is so much undiscovered talent in these companies that would do and excel very well in startups that entrepreneurs and recruiters like me have a hard time deciphering who's going to do well and who's not. But 
I think like at our firm, we've, we've tried to master the skill of finding undeveloped, unrecognized talent coming from big companies or maybe even governments that would excel in a hyper growth company. I will admit though, that you know, most people that work at big companies will fail at a startup. But if you can master that art of interviewing and finding those true 10x players inside of big companies, um, you, you can win here in the battle of talent in the Midwest. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, one of our CEOs brought this up recently to us. The Well, first of all, in the dev role, sometimes the having the startup experience may depending on the stage, uh, may or may not be the most important factor. But the point they were making to me is, there are these great developers in these bigger companies. They just happen to be working on different tools, right? So you shift them over to some of the, you know, kind of web-based, you know, cloud-based tools. They are just fine, right? They're absolutely, you know, great. And people don't get this, right? The the other thing, though, back to the startup point, uh, interested in your reaction to this, that I've observed is, you know, I hear somebody complaining, oh, I, I can't find a developer for this or that. You know, they're looking for one person. And it's very different when you're looking for one versus when you're looking to hire 10, mm-hmm. right? Because again, they're willing to make the leap if they're if there's other people going, right? If a company has good funding and they're, they have 10 open positions or 20 open positions, you're more likely to fill those than you are for one because nobody's going to make that leap from that whatever security they may have in a bigger company to be like one of very few number of engineers. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think there's two points to impact there. Like the first is security. So I think like the great news about, I think some of the trends that I'm seeing is there's more capital flowing to Midwestern companies. So balance sheets are getting bigger. Compensation packages are getting closer to big company and market with some upside in equity. So, and like certainly over the course of the last like 12 to 12 months or so, you're seeing a higher velocity of IPOs and equity becoming real liquid cash and and hearing tons of stories to that regard. So I think it's helping and fueling a lot of the effort where people's risk tolerance are are starting to come into play where they're actually for the first time associating the opportunity risk of not joining a growth stage startup versus staying where they're at and what that can mean kind of for their their family, you know, both short and long term. So I think I think there's a lot of really good trends helping on those equations. But I, 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 same way, I think like in technical talent, I think there's a huge opportunity to figure out who are great leaders or great um, individual contributors at large companies and rescale them for the pace of a startup. I think that's probably one of the best supply opportunities that you can access. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? And related to that, um, you know, one of the things like if you're in Silicon Valley, anybody you hire, they understand like stock option agreements and stock option plans and they don't. It tends to be in the Midwest. Are you are you seeing that change? Oh, I mean, slowly but surely. So I actually think, and I wanted to call this out as one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs and startups face in the Midwest is just educating teams and educating potential hires on stock options and equity. But like in Silicon Valley, if you didn't make money in equity, your friends have, right? And when you watch your friend buy a house for 50% more than it's worth in cash, you start going, wait a minute. And if you if that's not modeled for you, you know, on Main Street in Cincinnati, then you just don't know any different. Yeah, I think the education piece is huge. And you know, unfortunately, if you look at companies like Cover My Meds, for example, I think they sold for one point nine billion to McKesson. You know, only the top, I believe, like fifteen to twenty five people in that in that exit made really any money at all. Now they built an incredible team and they built an incredible culture, and they they helped 
so many people break into technology and from a startup perspective, but nobody really created a wealth event there, but like the top 15 to 25 people. And so I think like to get the actual flywheel spinning in these ecosystems, I think in Chicago, it's happening more, but in other cities in the Midwest, it's not. Entrepreneurs and CEOs, they need to give equity and they need to educate their teams on the value of equity. One of the things that we do with all of our clients when we're we're educating them on how to give an offer is we we say, okay, here's the base salary, right? Here's the stock options, here's the equity, and here's what they're gonna be valued at each stage. So at series A, here's what your equity is gonna be valued, here's what your equity is gonna be valued at series B, series C, series C. So they like so, so employees can get a real taste for, okay, this is what it can mean by why I should take a pay cut and leave Google and join, you know, this new hyper growth startup. Yeah. What what are some of the learnings you've had from that uh, that you would share to founder CEOs right now as they're if they're if they've just raised a series A and and they need to hire what what kind of things what would you suggest that they start thinking about I mean it's it's a hard one right because every founder has defied the odds of like getting to a point where you can raise external capital so I, I think the best thing founders can do is just be really authentic on like look here's an equity grant my hope is it's worth this, but you're going to learn and have more autonomy and have more fun along the ride getting to build. And we're playing for a high value outcome and it could be worth this, but like, but like what you're really playing for is the experience of being part of something where you're creating impact. Mm -hmm. And then the equity is sort of the icing on the cake. Right. So I think it's, you know, I think too often founders take a very aggressive approach and like, you're going to be a millionaire off this grant. And I think it turns people off the wrong way in the Midwest. We sort of lean in more on like the ability to have actual impact. And then the icing and the cake being, you know, the money you can make when there's a great financial outcome. Have you also seen sometimes they think, oh, it's uh, it's the Midwest and um, we, you know, we're going to give them equity and therefore cash compensation can be lower or it's, it's going to be lower. And I've found that, you know, that's our, our real estate prices are a heck of a lot lower, right? So if you have 20 people or 50 people, the place you're playing for real estate versus in New York or in the West Coast is, you know, hugely different. But I don't know that it's always wise to think about that and think about, like, in other words, you're going to pay that talent equivalent to what you're going to pay that talent almost anywhere in the country. Like, you, should, if you if you really want to hire the best talent, don't think about going cheap on on cash compensation. What are you saying? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think every company approaches it differently. I'll tell you a couple of quick stories. So Root Insurance, when I started working with them, they were two co-founders basically in a coffee shop and they grew to, I think it was a $7 billion IPO in five years. And when we were building that founding team, we were really an integral part of that, Tim. We we um, we done a t- did a ton of education on, on equity and we did a ton of education on, on taking pay cuts. So, you know, we placed people that were making 250K at Google, you know, making 250K at XYZ, and we got them down to, you know, 140, 150K. But now some of them are decamillionaires, right? Like it actually worked. And, and so at Root Insurance is a perfect example of where I hope the flywheel starts spinning in Columbus, for example, you know, that a lot of these employees they have earned a lot. They are going to uh, start new companies. Okay, so that's good. So you did do the education, and they understood the trade-off, the equity versus cash. So Nick, searches that you're doing, how many people are currently in the Midwest, and how many people are you hiring, like either back to the Midwest or you know where there's a reload involved and a, a difference in geography and 
culture? Yeah. Yeah. So 50 to 60% of our customer base is Midwest. The rest is national, you know, from a Midwest perspective, you know, I think, I think it's interesting, right? So Relo was something that it was really, and I'm Caleb, I'm curious if you're seeing the same trends, but 12 months ago before COVID, probably about 80% of our customers had a pretty hard either Relo or you must be in this market mandate on the search. And now I think it's probably 20% of our customers. Hmm. So it's dropped relatively dramatically. So, you know, I think relocating back to the Midwest is becoming more prevalent based on a lot of other factors that we talked about real estate prices spiking people realizing that in a in a uh, pandemic environment they want more space and want more a backyard or maybe more 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 areas to like hang out with their family than being locked up in a condo so so i think you know i think there's a lot of trends that are actually getting talent back to the midwest right now that have nothing to do with the fact of like companies trying to relocate them um, and I think there's a lot of interesting trends now that are happening where you can hire the best talent anywhere, which is going to help open up doors for higher growth for Midwest companies. And I think the challenge we have here is there are very few people that have seen a Series B company to an outcome in the Midwest, right? So I think what this should inevitably do is actually help us grow a lot of our Midwest companies because for the first time, you know, people are open to the idea of like, I'm going to hire a great VP of marketing that came from. Um, you know, whatever company in Silicon Valley, because they saw all the way through an IPO and now they can join a Chicago-based company, a Columbia-based company or Cincinnati-based company. So, so we're seeing a lot of trends of people relocating just because they're at a stage of life with family and, and want it and want to get back to a place with more space and cheaper costs. But, you know, I think, I think we'll actually see, you know, more virtualization over the next few years where Midwest companies hire people from anywhere. Yeah. What, what are, Caleb, what are you seeing in terms of the potential kind of permanent effects of COVID and remote work? Even prior to COVID, Tim, uh, companies from Silicon Valley in New York City and LA and the big coastal cities, they were coming to the Midwest to poach our talent and to hire our talent. Now, COVID has democratized access to talent, in my opinion. And I just feel like right now we're at this really interesting inflection point. Like Nick said, in the Midwest, we are, and really any company anywhere is able to hire talent from anywhere because you know every, everything's online, everything's remote. But when things get back to normal, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I find that, you know, I was just meeting with the VC yesterday, um, who was a guy that lived in Silicon Valley that is you know, just moved to Arizona and all of his buddies have moved to Miami and Austin, right? And it's just, it's interesting, like, the dollars are leaving Silicon Valley. I mean, that's a huge trend. A lot of the VCs are leaving, not just the talent. And so it's it's unfortunate. I wish more of the VCs were coming to the middle of the country in the Midwest, um, but they're not. I mean, it seems like they're really flocking to like the boulders of the world, the LAs of the world, the Austins of the world, the Miamis of the world. Nick, I'd be curious your perspective on this, but you know, I think like we can continue to win here if we're able to leverage talent from those other cities where people are moving to. Um, that have seen, you know, Series B to exit like Nick said. Um, but the one other big macro trend that I see is people are not really relocating during the pandemic. I mean, it's pretty difficult to get people to leave, you know, X city to come to Y city unless they have deep ties, Tim, to Ohio or to Michigan or to Pennsylvania. Um, but we spent a lot of time doing that when we were running big executive retained searches. You know, a lot of our focus is on finding people that went to Carnegie Mellon or went to University of Michigan or went to Ohio State or went to Penn State and they want to come home. 
I mean, that's how we run our searches from the executive side. But those are some of the macro trends I'm seeing. Yeah, so the, you just mentioned kind of really tapping into those connections that are already there in the, in the, the networks. And Nick, Nick your, your whole firm is based on that premise and you're investing a lot in technology on that. So can you share with us a little bit more the, the, the role that networking plays in recruiting and why that's going to be maybe even more important going forward? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, our bet is going to be everything going forward, right? Probably for two or three reasons. The first is when you switch jobs, it's like one of the most personal moments you can have, right? You spend more time with your coworkers and your colleagues and and down the road with customers or whatever it might be than you, than you generally do with your family. And so, so that usually requires trust, right? Like I'm going to go do this thing and I believe in this and especially in startups. I believe in this and I believe in this because of X, Y, and Z, right? And X can be either a trusted introduction referral, great diligence, watching a macro trend of growth, all these things. And so when you talk about a virtual world of talent where you can really recruit anybody anywhere, it's really hard for any one recruiter or any one firm to build really deep network effects in every market and every function in the United States to truly access like the total candidate pool or total addressable market of potential talent, right? And so like our big bet is that like, if you can build out these micro communities of leaders in each market um, and those leaders are super wired into who's great, who's not, and who might be an awesome fit because they've worked together and known each other for a while, you can actually start to expedite trust from the community and get someone that traditionally wouldn't look at a Columbus-based business or Chicago-based startup to actually listen actively, right? And there's a huge difference between when someone actively participates versus passively participates in a wide range of recruiting metrics, whether it's, you know, speed to actual close, the actual probability of getting them to join a company. And we believe foundationally it's all because of trust. So I think that like recruiting is going to be even more complex for that reason alone now, because you can hire anywhere, but now I, you also have Fortune 500s trying to do the David and Goliath thing, competing with startups, trying to access the same talent pool, you know, with way bigger war chests. You've got startups raising more capital, and in the Valley, large tech companies now competing in different talent pools in, in atypical places. Um, so it's going to be really messy as people try to figure out like how to actually win in court the best people. Um, and so we sort of believe the best way to do that is through trust. Yeah, I think that's a very good point and going to be very important. The um, So from a tactical standpoint, how is just the process of interviewing changed? And how have companies adapted to interviewing when you're, you potentially never meet a person live? And Nick, we went, we went through that with our hire that, you know, and, and yeah. we did with, you know, through and with you, where it was, we were having to get kind of creative yeah, I was just bummed that we couldn't like all fly down together and hang out in, in your in your office right now because I think it would have been it would have been awesome. That would have closed the deal three months faster. Yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at this and then we love Caleb to hear his thoughts too. So so it's changed a ton, right? So the first the first thing that I think is really interesting is like the friction of taking an interview has like completely gone away. There's no more like ducking into a conference room or walking around the block yeah. or or doing doing some of the traditional things that those who are actively employed or gainfully employed. Um, would have to do to look at an opportunity. So that's one. I think the second thing is, is 
it's way harder to build trust in a virtual interaction. I think people are getting better at it now. We're like, people are learning how to communicate, learning how to build a relationship, learning how to understand somebody only in, in virtual interactions. But going back to what I mentioned earlier, it's a personal thing. So, so switching jobs is very personal. So if, if, you know, if you can't find ways to build trust in a virtual experience, it's going to be really difficult for you to land great talent, especially on the senior side of things. Right. Um, so Caleb, yeah, one of the challenges is building trust remotely because I think face-to-face interaction is huge when you're interviewing folks. And like we've been talking about, the war on talents is greater than ever. And so, I mean, I've been shocked and almost repelled of how many candidates that we've placed that have gotten offers accepted, you know, ready to start this new company. And then, you know, two days before they're like, hey, we got a better offer, right? And we're going to do this now. And so I feel like you know, it, it's really, really challenging to build trust, but companies can do several things during the interview process to act, to, to build that camaraderie and build that trust. And they have to know once a person accepts a job, like they're not automatically going to start in two weeks or three weeks or whatever. They have to continue to build trust and have a lot of touch points with those, those new hires in between that grace period. Because number one, they're going to get a counter offer if they're any good from their current employer which is always a tricky, hairy situation. And then number two, I mean, if they're any good, they're going to get hit up all day, every day by other recruiters. Um, and so opportunities are flying across everybody's desk and the trust and loyalty is not there. So, you know, what we advise our clients is once somebody accepts an offer, right? I mean, you got to have a lot of touch points and build that emotional trust and rapport with them, or you're going to have a 50-50 chance of them showing up on the first day. And when you're building trust, I hate to use the term kind of tips or techniques, but I am looking for you. Is there some practical advice or ways to structure the interactions that you've seen that that work particularly well? I think like just the more touch points with more people on your team, the better of who they've met in the interview process. You know, send them a gift, send them a T-shirt, right? You know, have the hiring manager that they're going to be reporting to call them and tell them how excited they are that they're going to be joining. You know, send them the computer, send them the onboarding stuff, right? Like touch place with them every single day and have multiple people do it. Uh, if you follow that, you're, you're going to win. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny. We have these conversations with our clients and, and sometimes they do all this stuff and, and we still lose, right? So, I mean, it's not a bulletproof solution, but nine times out of 10, if you follow that, you, you will win. I think, Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think it just removes it from transactional to relationship oriented where, you know, you used to be able to get away with like treating recruiting interaction like a transaction, take these steps and then join company, you know, now, and it's, and Tim, you know, this a bit, like I played sports all my life growing up and in college, like when you go on a recruiting trip in college, like they stay for a full weekend and like you eat every meal together and like they stay in your dorm room and like you go to a match, right. Or like a game and and I think like it's more of that element where you really have to roll out the red carpet. You have to show vulnerability. You have to get them to meet the whole family and not just a couple touch points. And I think the more that you can think of um, every every relationship as as a relationship and, and not like a let's get this butt in this seat, like the higher batting average you're going to have. What about uh, individual you know Zoom sessions or calls versus group calls? Group interviews are really tough. I kind of agree with Caleb where it's, it's especially in the earlier stage of a process, right? So where you're trying to really understand, ask authentic questions, like learn about the business. 
it's just, it's, it's hard to like build an interaction motion where you're talking without talking over each other or like figuring out the cues of when to participate. So I think, I think in the beginning of a, a recruiting process, you should do one-on-ones. And then at the end, if it's more about like just getting to know each other or having a conversation about like the path of the business, I think, I think groups can actually be powerful because um, you can learn how to collaborate with each other and, and think about what it might look like working as a team. Um, but in the beginning of the process, it's, it's just awkward. The one thing, my point on the group versus individual interviews is you don't want group bias when you're interviewing people, right? You don't want group think. You don't want the strong personality in the room to be the decider, right? So Tim, if you're interviewing a candidate and you have three other people that all report to you on that interview, and if you say this about the candidate, right, after the interview, and you give your feedback to your team, you have that your the people that report to you are going to have a, a um a less likelihood of disagreeing with you. If you have independent interviews along the way, and then you share feedback independently, um, I think that's a better way to win and, and have un, you know, bias out of the interview process. One other, how about recording interviews? What, what's your policy there? I, I'm all about it. I mean, as long as you're transparent with candidates that, hey, this is getting re- recorded, and especially for executive searches, like we're gonna be sharing this with the board, and we're going to be sharing this presentation with the board. Like it happens all the time. So as long as you're transparent with them, I don't see an issue with it. Yeah, agree. We, we actually one of our good partners is a company called Bright Hire. Um, they do some really cool things around like recording and transcriptions. And eighty percent of our candidates or talent that we talk to is okay with it, as long as you're upfront about what you're doing. Twenty percent say no, get it off the record. But you know, I think transparency is just yeah. key there. Well, and it does seem that this is one of the the positives I think out of COVID that people are getting so used to zoom and teleconferencing and we're seeing it. And I've written about it a few times that some of our companies that record different meetings or team meetings, and you can watch afterwards and you can improve, right. Whether it's sales process or just team communications. And it's, it's a great learning tool that hopefully people are more comfortable with. So speaking of COVID, Caleb, you have an interesting story. I think just as an entrepreneur, you were at the time headed off for was it a sabbatical? Yeah, it's still, still, uh, still sad, man. That that story is heartbreaking. So I, I've been doing this work for eight or nine years now since I started my company, and I, I promised my wife before we were going to start a family that hey, we were going to go to Europe and do like a three month trip, right? We're, we were in Ireland, then we were in Scotland, and then COVID hit. So it was March thirteenth when I think. Um, Trump came on and said, hey, you know, anybody that is a European is not allowed in the U.S. And so, you know, we, we, we had plans for three more months to go to Italy, to Spain, to Greece, and, and really kind of like live like Europeans. And I had, you know, my team was all set up and excited to take on this challenge without me. And then, you know, COVID hit. And I'm, I'm really grateful we came home from a business perspective. I mean, things really lit on fire. You know, everything went on hold. We went from 75, 80 retained searches to basically five or 10 in a month. And then, you know, things really slowed down in, in April, you know, May was a pretty tough month. And then, you know, fortunately, I'm sure this happened with you, Nick, but you know, June, the floodgates opened right back up. So it was like a, it was almost like a two month paralysis where everybody was paused. And then, you know, June, July, August, uh, you know, the 20, 2020, we had a bigger year than we did in 2019, but, um, it was, it was unfortunate that I wasn't able to do this, this big sabbatical, this big trip that we had big you know plans to do. 
I have a feeling you'll have another chance to do it. But I remember talking to you. I don't know if it was just when you came back or were about to come back. And, you know, the world was changing and uh, I admire you because you took action. You didn't, you didn't let it just happen to you. You said, Hey, I'm re-engaging. I'm coming back and we're going to make sure that this business survives and thrives. We're not just going to take it. That was awesome. Nick, what have, what have, what have you seen in terms of your your staff during that time and, and the way your business got through it? Same result, like everything freeze and pause, you know, and had, had 60 days of, you know, what is the world going to do? Not just Hunt Club, but what is the world going to do in like something that's relatively unprecedented? And then I think, you know, Tim, from all the CEOs I've spoken to, with the exception of those, unfortunately, in hospitality or retail or travel, all many of them received PPP. Many of them outperformed their their forecast or their their strategic plan on on what um or scenario plan on what would happen, and and many of them froze or cut hiring. So most businesses that we work with actually were in a way better position because they got became way more cost effective and ran ran way better um, over kind of Q two twenty twenty and that springboarded into kind of acceleration in hiring and, and growth. So it's, you know, we, we suffered the same stuff. It was terrible. We had to furlough a number of people and, and we're fortunate to have brought back quite a few of them. Yeah. Well, good for you for, for getting through it. I had my first kid in November. So I felt like I was in quarantine with my first child, November, December, and January. And then I was in quarantine again, and now we're having our second. So so I hope my wife doesn't listen to this because I'm sure she'll be like before number three, we need to go to Europe for three months <laughs> or something like that. So let's uh, let's switch our hats for a second and just uh, see if we can share some insights for people who are being recruited. For those looking, you know, doing job searches or interviewing with companies, what advice would you give them? I think before you start a job search, you should really identify, you know, the top three to five criteria that are most important to you that you want to see in your next opportunity, like really do some soul searching and figure out, okay, here are the things that I value the most. And here's the things that I'm looking for, whether that's, you know, more autonomy, right. You know, more interesting problems to solve X, Y, or Z industry, you know, working on these types of problems, et cetera, really get a clear picture for what you want in your next opportunity. And then, you know, when you're interviewing, when you're interviewing at companies, um, you know, just like pattern matching and figuring out how well does that match against what I'm really desiring, what I'm really looking for. I think too many times people go into a job search, like not doing that soul searching and not really figuring out what they desire. And then they end up in a place that they're, they're really not happy. I, I think most people, frankly, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I would argue that like 90% of the candidate pool that we talk to has no clue what they want to do next and sort of let the market guide them versus like really thinking thoughtfully about their career path, talking to mentors and building more of a strategic approach. So I think it's just, I'd echo what he's, what Caleb said. And like, it's your career, do the work on where you think from an educated perspective, you want to go next and then align that with the market versus the inverse. And I think the second piece of feedback I'd give in this particular environment is like, be really thoughtful on, on how many interviews you take with a single company. Just because the friction of meeting people has decreased dramatically doesn't mean that it's, from a reputation perspective, it's the right thing to engage in a 10 to 20-hour process with a company and pull out. And we, we see that happening quite a bit now, too, just because that friction is removed. So I would, you know, I would encourage candidates to have the two to three things they care most about 
stress test that in two to three hours of an interaction with the company, and then really be really thoughtful on if they want to proceed after versus some of the behaviors we're seeing right now. One other constituent to talk about, I know a lot of your business comes from venture capitalists. So can you share a little bit about um, uh, who you've worked with and some of the, the, uh, the learnings or what you'd like your colleagues in the venture world to think about in terms of, you know, getting help from you and recruiting. Yeah, we've been really fortunate over the years. I mean, we've been yeah. working with Drive Capital when they first came to uh, the Midwest. They're ex-Sequoia investors. We filled over 400 roles for them across executive sales, marketing, engineering positions. So Chris Olson and Mark Bomby have definitely been a big driver in our business. Um, but we work with 50 other funds across the U.S. You know, Sequoia re- recommends us quite a bit now. Uh, Excel has, um, Refinery Ventures has. So we've been super blessed. I would say for us, you know, our bread and butter is definitely tech jobs. Like we we started there recruiting software engineers, and, and that's where we fill the most amount of positions. So every year we fill between 120, 130 or so tech jobs, and then you know, 30 to 50 sales jobs, and then probably another 30 to 50 executive jobs. A wide range. We've got awesome relationships with tons of Chicago-based VCs, your High Park Ventures, your Chicago Ventures, your Light Banks, you know, kind of so on and so forth. And then been really fortunate to build like large growing relationships with both coastal sides, whether it's your El Catterton's or your Bain Capitals or your um, Excels or your Sequoias and so on and so forth. So we just, you know, we kind of feel fortunate that, um, that like the world is sort of understanding the democratization of talent and how network effects can play and it aligns to a lot of the ways they believe in trusted introductions. Thank you. You guys, uh, incredibly important part of the ecosystem here. So I'm so glad that you took the time to share your insights and, and uh, wisdom with, with the listeners. Just thankful for, for you both and how you've been able to help us and our companies. Wish you the greatest Thank you. success. Thank you. We're lucky ones, Tim. You've been a, you've been an awesome partner to both of us. That's exactly right. Thanks, Tim. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Darcy Howe, founder and managing director at KC Rise Venture Fund. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is Casted.